OTB GAA. One of the fathers was mentioning the cows at half six or seven on the, on the, on the Monday morning. They started crying that we we'll just have to win in the county final yesterday. Subscribe to the OTB GAA podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Towards the end of the year now, so we wanted to touch on uh, the Formula One year that was and a few of the news stories doing the rounds in the sport over the last week or two. Delighted to say Jack Nickel, the BBC Radio 5 Live F1 commentator, joins us on the line this morning. Morning, Jack. How are things? Morning. Good. Thank you. Great to have you on. Uh, thanks, William, for taking the call this morning. Um, we, we do want to focus on, on, on the year that was and, and a few of your highlights of the Formula One calendar uh, just gone. But uh, there has been a few stories doing the rounds over the last week or two in the sport. And um, the FIA banning political signs has been one that's rumbled people to some degree. I know Sebastian Vettel and Lewis Hamilton often, uh, two of the proponents of of various signs. um, The uh, Arrest the Cops Who Killed Breonna Taylor t-shirt, famously, that Lewis Hamilton wore in 2020. Has this been a surprise or something long time coming from the FIA? I think it's the the, the first thing to point out is that it's not sort of exactly a banning because it's just a request. I say just. It is a request that these uh, demonstrations or political points have to be approved in writing by the FIA beforehand. So on paper, that suggests that, you know, let's use Hamilton's Brianna Taylor T-shirt. He could, in writing, put it to the FIA, I want to wear this T-shirt on the podium, and they could, in theory, accept it. But the worry is, of course, that they wouldn't and that they are giving themselves the power to deny anything, basically, that that anyone wants to make in terms of um, in terms of a political statement. So the those actions are not banned. They just have to get permission before they happen. And it's doubtable that they would get the permission. So it's a it's it's a little interesting. And I think it wasn't. It has kind of come a little bit out of nowhere to be to be perfectly honest you might remember earlier this year there was a whole debate about jewelry and what jewelry you could or couldn't wear that kind of suddenly came out of nowhere so it feels like the FIA are uh kind of flexing their muscles a little bit in terms of you know you have to do what we say and they're trying to kind of lay down the law which I think yeah, has has caught people out a little bit. I don't think anyone was expecting this this new kind of regulation. Is is part of this, Jack, that uh, most sports organisations probably have these rules on their statute books anyway, and that there's a bit of a loophole here, and that we would actually expect if you were going to make a protest, you would make a protest irrespective of what the rules were. So this is really just tidying up some administrative nonsense, really, uh, and that it doesn't change anything because ultimately, like, if the sanctions are going to be um, what we would expect, like, uh, uh, please don't do that again. Or, you know, <laughs> I, I can't imagine if Lewis Hamilton makes a protest next year that the sanction will be anything significant in terms of pushing him down the grid or banning him for a race, surely. Yeah, there's nothing in these new uh, wordings and regulations that suggest what the punishment will be. It's not if you do a, you know, political protest, then you lose 10 championship points or you get a race ban or anything. There doesn't appear to be anything sporting that would come from it. And as you say, just clarifying the wording like this would make it a protest. And if Hamilton, if, if you know, let's say Hamilton, Vettel's retiring, as you say, but, you know, if a driver decides to do a protest, now it's against the rules, then it is still a protest. And so you're protesting it. So changing the rules to make it a protest doesn't really seem to, to change a huge amount. And that's why I think it's more of a, 
a kind of power move from the from the FIA rather than anything that will necessarily have a have a huge impact. It's fairly reactive all this, Jack, from the FIA, isn't it? Because I remember that Hamilton wearing the the uh, T-shirt on the podium, and that has kind of led to them now allowing drivers to only wear race suits, clothes up to the neck on the podium. So it seems to be something they're like, as things happen and as drivers make certain uh, stands, they're like, oh yeah, maybe we should should nip that in the bud. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting part of it, and it's not it's not it's not entirely dissimilar to the to the to the armband. Uh, stuff at the at the World Cup, you know, with Harry Kane and and the other um, European countries that wanted to wear the the rainbow armband at the World Cup. It's that it's still that sort of thing of these global sports bodies wanting to make sure that they remain uh, neutral, I suppose, because you know, with with and and it, this kind of political protest had never really happened in Formula One before, and whether that's because it is a white middle-class sport predominantly for its entire history. And so therefore there wasn't really a huge amount to, to protest against, if you will. But then Hamilton coming in, um, who, who doesn't come from that sort of background is the driver who's really changed that and really started to, to make these protests. And I think that the FIA are, concerned about it and concerned that every race is going to be a different political statement and i think they also are concerned because they know the countries that they race in are controversial you know with races in saudi arabia even bahrain in the past has been controversial and maybe still is and they also race in qatar and you know as i say we heard all of the stuff about the the world cup over the last month and formula one raced in qatar before the world Cup was there and it's going to be back again this year so though i think they're just aware that the that those discussions will happen over the course of the year and as you say trying to nip it in the bud which is on the one hand it's their prerogative i suppose but on the other hand it's it's disappointing really interesting that you bring up the the world cup and, and qatar obviously what seems to have happened in qatar was that qatar told fifa what to do and fifa said okay no problems right up to the very last minute deciding on the drink ban which on the face of it was like oh that kind of makes sense but then you think about what it actually says about the power of the country hosting it so maybe this is the FAI getting their ducks in a row for when they are saying actually no you can't wear a rainbow helmet and uh, we are going to take action but it'll be a really interesting situation because Lewis Hamilton has reached a point where it feels like he's going to do what he wants to do well and that's the thing and if there's not going to be sporting sanctions that's that will be the the determining factor, won't it? Because we heard the FA come out and say, well, we were, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but they were threatened with yellow cards or unlimited sanctions, I think they were, was, the, was the phrase that um, the FA could have implemented on England or whoever wore the armband. Whereas, as you say, Hamilton, it's tough to say Hamilton's bigger than Formula One, but he's not far off to be honest. And he's getting to the twilight of his career, even though he's still driving excellently. He's only got, you know, another two or three years remaining in the sport. So is he going to be fussed that if he wears a rainbow helmet in Qatar at the, at the end of, uh, or at the start of next season, is he going to be fussed that he gets a million euro fine? You know, no, I don't think so. I think he would do that for, for that, um, 
level of publicity that it would that it would get and for that level of awareness that it would raise so that's the challenging thing is when you have uh, an independent s- sporting celebrity such as hamilton can the fia really stop him doing anything he wants i don't know it's funny jack isn't it because we, we like so much controversy understandably over the qatar world cup and yet uh, in formula 1 i mean it's like water off a duck's back because they've been, uh, you know, having races in these countries for so many years. I remember even this season, wasn't it, in in Jeddah, where you know you have a rocket strike in Saudi Arabia, not far from the from the track, uh, you know, smoke coming across the track, and drivers wondering where this is coming from. So, if there's a sport that's well equipped to deal with with controversies or um, or issues like this, it is Formula One. Yeah, there's no doubt about that, and Formula One has always been. Uh... I suppose you could say pushing the boundaries of of where they go to in the world. Even back to 1986, when there was a race in Hungary, um, they you know they went behind the the Iron Curtain for the first time for a for a for a motor race, and that was sort of at the the height or maybe the sort of downturn, but you know Cold War times, and they still went there and went to Saudi Arabia for the first time uh, two years ago, which. And 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 like and Bahrain, there was a lot of controversies in Bahrain in the 2010s. Baku in uh, Azerbaijan gets a little bit of heat sometimes when Formula One goes there. And Formula One's argument is, well, you know, we're a sport. We're here to race wherever we should race, and and we're not here to make political statements. But there's that crossover, isn't there, of where politics becomes human rights, and that's the that's the grey area that Formula One has found itself in a lot over the last few years and yeah before before the world cup in qatar even uh came about well not before it was announced obviously but before it happened it's funny we were talking yesterday jack on the show about the the january transfer window in football and kind of looking ahead and and i'm looking at the team principles now a lot of these names won't be familiar to people if you've seen drive survive some of them will be but some some of the changes over the last month have been quite uh incredible so fred vasseur who was with alfa romeo is replacing Mattia Benato at Ferrari as team principal. Uh, Andreas Seidel from McLaren has joined the Cyber Group, so he's going to oversee, oversee this new um, Audi uh, venture into Formula One. McLaren have appointed Andreas Sella as principal. Just Capito has stepped down from from Williams. Like, is this this is fairly mad? It, it's it's unforeseen to see so many changes. It, it's like a crazy transfer deadline day almost in football. It's absolutely wild, honestly. It's I've never known anything like it in Formula One because. There's not really a culture in Formula One of manager changes. You get it a little bit at Ferrari. They've been through quite a few team principles as they try and get back towards the front. But you look at Red Bull, ever since they entered Formula One in uh, the mid-2000s, their team principal has been Christian Horner. And he's still there, uh, what, 15 years later. And Toto Wolff has been the team principal pretty much since Mercedes rejoined uh, Formula One. So... You don't get huge turnovers of the management staff in the way that you you do in football. So for all of this to kick off in the closed season is is really, really interesting. I think that the Ferrari one is obviously a reaction to their the fact that they had a really good car this year, but um, operationally were really very, very weak. And so Mattia Bonotto has has been fired there and and as a result, Fred Vasseur's coming in. And Vasseur is a man with a huge amount of motorsport experience. He's a really 
he's run teams in in Formula Two and Formula Three, the the junior formula for many many years, and I think that Ferrari hope he can bring a bit of sort of operational nous to the team because that's what they're that's what they're lacking really. They seem to be able to build a good car, but they don't seem to be able to to race it well. So that's what they're hoping with Vasseur. And as you say, all the other uh, changes and appointments. Uh, some were kind of seen coming, like Bonotto leaving Ferrari. That was kind of known for maybe a month or so now. But some com- came completely out of the blue. Jos Capita Williams, we had no idea that was coming. And suddenly there's a press release and you're like, oh, okay, okay, right, fine, what? And the McLaren stuff and, yeah, it's it's unprecedented, I think, this amount of movement. What do you put it down to? Um... I think that there's a there's a so I think the Ferrari one is, you know, as as I mentioned, that sort of need for um, results really that Ferrari just aren't getting. I think the Andreas Seidel moving to Sauber is a very good move from Audi. So I think that Audi have been very smart. They're joining Formula One in 2026, so they know they need to start properly planning now. So taking Andreas Seidel who came into McLaren to work in Formula One for the first time, really, a couple of years ago, and has really overseen their resurgence from when they were near the back of the grid to now not quite winning races, but Lando Norris finished on the podium this year in Imola, and they're back towards running at the front. He nearly won a race last year, actually, Lando Norris in in uh, in Sochi. So Seidel has been really impressive. So I think it's a really smart move from Audi to, to come in and, and poach him. And then the Capito... Thing at William, and then obviously they've uh, appointed internally for with Andrea Stella, which I think is a good appointment. And Jos Capito, we, we, it, it just seems like it didn't gel really with Williams. He came in at the start of last season, and I think there's very mixed feelings about him from within the team. They didn't make the amount of progress that they wanted this year. They still finished last in the team's championship. So I think it's just a a perfect storm. Of, like they're not all related. I think that's the thing is they're all quite independent incidents that that happened to have happened this year you know Jost Capito could have had one more year if Audi weren't coming into Formula One then um, Seidel wouldn't be leaving McLaren so it's all just that perfect storm that's made it so uh, wild really so it, it's a coincidence as a, opposed to a trend I, I did wonder if uh, I mean look from the outside it, it feels like we're in the midst of a Formula One boom you see the viewership figures from America mm. for the first time Formula One is cracking the top 20 and it's not once, it's twice. And you're like, okay, well, that is a revolution. And so therefore, the money and the marketing seems to be booming and the teams all seem to be making money at a level that they haven't done in the past. Starting from the outside, is 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 that the sense within the sport? Yes, I think that that is very much the case. I think that the Formula One is in a really, really good place right now. And I think that that's part of the, the Williams reasoning, I think, for, for getting rid of Jos Capito is that we're, we're now okay. We're, we were one of the worst funded teams on the on the grid, probably the poorest team on the grid, apart from maybe Haas. But now there's a budget cap, so everybody can only spend the same amount throughout the season. There's more revenue coming in because there's more races. There's going to be 24 races next season, which is the most ever. And as you say, viewership in the US is huge. There's going to be three F1 races in America next year. There was a new race in Miami this season. There's a new race in Las Vegas next season down the strip, which is going to be 
something quite remarkable. And I think, yeah, I think Formula One's in a, in, a, in a huge boom right now. And it's, I don't know, I don't know. For me, it's, for me, it's great to see because you spend the, you know, it's something I've loved since I was a kid. And when I was at school, you know, in the mid 90s, no one else liked Formula One. So you were a <laughs> bit of a loner there, you know, whereas now suddenly everyone's interested and especially with Drive to Survive, you know, my cousins will text me being like, oh, can't believe Toto Wolf. And I'm like, what? I've known you for what we've been you've been my cousin for well obviously my whole life and you've never had any interest in Formula One all of a sudden all these random people like F1 and and are watching it and it's uh, yeah it's cool it's cool but it just needs the racing to it was the perfect storm last year because you had Verstappen and Hamilton going head to head there were three seasons of Drive to Survive before that in very boring F1 seasons and so no one cared so it was the perfect storm of of an amazing sporting year combined with drive to survive combined with good races in America and formula one's really riding that wave at the moment. The uh, latest online trend is uh, Nepo babies. And obviously Mick Schumacher fans that uh, must've been feeling his collar a little bit going, um, what, what's going on here? Why, why am I getting caught up in this? Um, but he, he's got a job pretty quickly after having lost a job, which makes me feel like he was always going to get that job anyway. He's just good, but not great. Is that the story? I think that's that's pretty accurate. I think he was a little bit unlucky, honestly, to lose his job with with Haas. I thought he'd had a okay enough season. The first third of the year was was pretty dodgy. He had some really big crashes in Saudi Arabia and in Monaco, but then he kind of got himself back together. Had a really good race in Silverstone in Austria, where he finished eighth and sixth. Looked like he was kind of back on track, and the rest of the season was okay, but. That was about it. And that's how he'd looked, honestly, in his in his junior formulas coming through the ranks. He won Formula 2, but not spectacularly. There's a, when, you, when you see drivers coming up through the field, and we've seen it with Charles Leclerc, Max Verstappen, George Russell and Lando Norris in particular, they come in and they win fairly comfortably the championships in the junior formula. That didn't happen with, uh, with Schumacher. He won them, but not exactly at a canter. I think he could have done another season in in Formula One and and been absolutely okay because he was absolutely okay this year. But ultimately, Haas decided that they they want a driver with um, more more experience, really, who will get them more points, which is understandable. So he's going to be the reserve driver at Mercedes, which is a you know a neat synergy because his dad Michael ended his career with Mercedes. In fact, he started his professional career with Mercedes in the late 1980s, racing in sports cars. So there's a nice synergy there. I don't think reserve driver at Mercedes will lead to a Formula One seat. To be honest, I don't think he's you know now in the running to take over from Hamilton. But if he impresses, you never know because Nick De Vries was the reserve driver for. Mercedes this season and he's ended up with a seat in F1 next year so the the Mick Schumacher story in F1 might not be completely over just yet Finally Jack we, we, we'd asked you to kind of pick out your top few moments from the from the calendar year just gone and, and you mentioned Bahrain where we had the uh, Leclerc winning ahead of Sainz uh, Silverstone unbelievable race and Carlos Sainz winning his first ever Formula 1 Grand Prix and then of course one that stood out for me as well in, in my memory was Japan where Verstappen wins, uh, you know, gets enough points to, to secure the championship. But that terrifying moment where Pierre Gasly uh, almost hits the, the tractor, I think it was, on the side of the side of the track. What was your what was your standout moment from the from the year we've just had? Yeah, I think Japan was a was a really crazy one because not only Verstappen won the championship, but he won the championship not knowing he'd won the championship because he didn't think he had enough points. 
Johnny Herbert told him, you've won the championship. Verstappen said thanks, but didn't really believe him. The team didn't believe him. No one really believed that the FIA had got it right, but they had, even though they got it wrong. It was a very complicated and strange point scenario. So that was a, a weird way to end the season. But I think Bahrain was really exciting because it looked like we were going to have a title fight. Leclerc and Verstappen were wheel to wheel for three or four laps, swapping places for the lead. And you were like, OK, it's not Verstappen versus Hamilton anymore. It's Verstappen versus Leclerc. But I think that Silverstone race was just, it was the race of the, the season. You just never knew what was going to happen. Verstappen dominating it gets a bit of damage. The car drops back, drops pace. And all of a sudden you've got, Hamilton overtook two cars in one corner at one point. While uh, while Sainz was fighting with Perez, Hamilton came through to take both of them. It was it was, uh, it was a remarkable, remarkable race. Looked as though Hamilton was going to win it for a while, but Sainz took his first win and it was just a, a brilliant Formula One race. That, that, the 2022 British Grand Prix will be one that, you know, we talk about in 10 years time of being like, what a race. Huge crash at the start as well for, for Joe Guanyu. It just really had everything. Jack, great to have you with us this morning. Enjoy Christmas. Thanks a million. No worries. Have a good day. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.